On the show this week, my guest is Russ Roberts, an economist, author, and rapper. We talk about how economic theory can help marketers simplify messages for their customers, writing fiction to teach economic theory, and the modern life lessons we can learn from Adam Smith. Welcome to episode 167 of the Marketing and Finance Podcast. This is the podcast for ideas and inspiration on marketing your business and growing your business and for discussing topics on all things finance. I'm Roger Edwards, a marketing guy and keynote speaker from Edinburgh, helping you keep your marketing strategies simple and the BS at bay. Hey folks and welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Thank you as always for downloading or streaming the show. I've got a fabulous interview for you this week with Russ Roberts, a US economist, and this has taken me down memory lane. Russ has reignited lots of memories from my days at university studying economics and marketing. But before we get into that, just to remind you that if you need help with your marketing, we can do it over Skype video. If you want to talk about growing your business, keeping your marketing strategy simple, planning your content and social media, let's have a mug of coffee over Skype video and a chat. You can pick my brains, perhaps get a little coaching. Some of the things that we can talk about would be putting together a simple marketing strategy for your business, developing a content marketing and social media plan, creating and developing your social media profiles, launching your product to your customers, recording and launching your first podcast or using live video in your marketing. Are you up for it? Just get in touch. We can have a 30-minute session or an hour-long session, and we do it over Skype video, so there's no travel and no inconvenience. But the coffee is essential. So let's get back to Russ Roberts. We chat about how Russ became interested in economics, why making assumptions can help marketers make things simple, how economics influences the marketing process, what inspired Russ's novels, fiction that teaches economic theory, what Adam Smith can teach us about living in the world today, and why empathy is important to humanity. So let's get straight into that interview with Russ, right here on the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Russ, welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Great to be with you, Roger. Where are we Skyping each other from, Russ? I am in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., in Maryland. And you are a fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, is that right? I am. I work out of our D.C. office. I, I summer at Stanford, but I am on the other coast during the rest of the year here in D.C. My virtual assistant uh, spends quite a bit of time trawling the world for interesting people for me to talk to on the Marketing and Finance podcast. And she gave me your name, Russ, and I was attracted to the book that you've recently written and published. And the book is called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. And when I saw this, my eyes, my eyes lit up, my ears pricked up, because 30 odd years ago, I did 
an economics degree at Leeds University in the United Kingdom, and of course learned all about Adam Smith and Milton Friedman and John Maynard Keynes and all of that sort of thing. And it brought back so many memories, I thought, I really am going to have to talk to Ross Roberts. (laughs) So we've got quite a lot of things that we can talk about, and I'm particularly interested not only in your book, but also in the rap videos that you've done on the ideas of John Maynard Keynes. But before we get into talking about that, Russ, maybe give the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast a little bit of background about yourself and where you came from, how your career developed, and and basically what makes Ross Roberts tick. I only need about 10 seconds. No, uh, (laughs) I'll do my best to try to keep that short. I'm uh, formally trained as an economist. I went to the University of Chicago. I always had interest in non-economic stuff, fiction, film. And so my career has taken a very strange turn for an academic economist. Mm-hmm. So I have two rap videos. I have an animated poem called It's a Wonderful Loaf. that talks <laughs> about emergent order and and the market for bread and how wondrous that is, even and how we don't even notice how wondrous it is. I've written three novels that teach economics through dialogue. And then in 2006, I got into your business. I became a podcaster mm-hmm. and have been doing that for 12 years. And uh, to my surprise, it's uh, maybe the most interesting thing that I do with my time and allows me, as you know, to talk to people who are a lot smarter than I am. And it's um, podcast is Econ Talk. And it's been an incredibly gratifying opportunity to have what is essentially a radio program without being on the radio. And it's a tribute to what an incredible time we live in that we can share information with each other around the world that way. So I've, I've done a lot of different things in trying to make economics interesting and accessible to uh, what I call a normal audience as opposed to an academic audience. It's interesting because at the moment I'm writing a book and my book's all about marketing and keeping marketing simple. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to draw on some of the lessons from my career and, and earlier during my education. And the economics degree that I did at university did um, include quite a lot of marketing subsidiary subjects. So we learned about product life cycles and all of that sort of thing. But I remember all the way through um, secondary school, which is what we call um, the, the second part of education in the United Kingdom, I always saw the people in the senior school doing what we call A-levels, doing this subject called economics. And that wasn't available to us in the secondary part of the school. And I almost, I just wanted to do this economics subject because it just sounded so interesting and actually so relevant. Because even though history and geography and, and French and maths was was okay, I think the economics side of things interested me because it was all rooted in the real world. And as soon as I got into the senior school and started to do my A-levels, I was just diving in there, wanting to do this economics subject. And of course, as soon as I started doing it, I became incredibly interested in it. And in the end, it turned out to be my most successful subject at school. And that's why I went on to university to do that, that degree in economics. What, what made you interested in economics right in the, in the first place with, with all the other interests that you've got? Well, I I think I have a similar experience to yours, perhaps I found I was pretty good at it. Mm -hmm. It's not very romantic, but it, it is the thing that drew me to it originally. But as I got more involved in, in studying it, the, the puzzle-like nature of it, the the way that different pieces of the economy fit together mm-hmm. or the way that markets work, I found those just fascinating. And the ability of economics to have things to say about the real world, as you, as you mentioned, was, was also fun. 
The other part I think that's deeply appealing about it is that when it's properly taught, it's less about mathematics and more about philosophy and psychology, human nature, and as, as you mentioned earlier, what makes us tick. And I think that is what has sustained my interest over the decades. Mm -hmm. uh, the drier side, the more mathematical, analytical side, I think is much uh, less interesting and much less effective. It is the uh, more glamorous part of the profession. It is what, quote, serious economists do. Mm -hmm. But I think it's um, a lot of that is is less promising than it appears on the surface. And I'm much more drawn as I get older to the the philosophical side of, of what is the good life. I like to say I, I got this from a student who got it from a professor and she can't remember which one. But <laughs> this this quote is that economics is the study of how to get the most out of life. And that sounds remarkably um, wrong. I think most people think economics is about how to make money in the stock market. But as you study economics, you find out that although the stock market is part of it, it's a very small part. And most of what makes economics exciting is the application to human behavior to philosophy and to understanding just the complexity of the world. Yeah, I think I'm, I was probably very much the same when I studied this at university. I struggled with the mathematical elements of it uh, and the econometrics. Gosh, I can't even remember what econometrics was, but I know that I um, found that the hardest of all. But but what was what was very interesting was all the discussion about supply and demand, perfect competition, monopolistic competition, all of those models which were so full of assumptions that actually they probably fell apart because there were so many assumptions. But you know, as a, as an idea and as to mo as an, a model as to how the world worked, it was fascinating. And I guess that's what ultimately sucked me into the marketing profession because obviously marketing is about creating a product to meet the needs of a consumer and then pricing that product and then ultimately promoting that product to yeah. the consumer and all the ups and downs in terms of pricing and demand that go with it. That's right. And I, you know, you said it's about, you mentioned all those assumptions. People make fun of economists because they make a lot of assumptions, but assumptions are what allow us to understand the world at all. Yeah. The world's so complicated. If you didn't make assumptions, you'd just be describing its complexity, which is would take a lifetime just to describe any any one product. There's so much diversity in how people might use it, their daily lives, uh, what role it plays, when they use it, how they use it. And we say, well, we're going to assume those aren't important. We're going to assume that everyone uses it, say, for this reason. Well, that's unrealistic. Yeah, it is. But we have to start somewhere if we're going to grapple with the richness of life. We're going to have to abstract from a bunch of details some of which are important, but we can't look at every detail or we will have nothing to say. So when you talk about, say, for example, perfect competition, perfect competition is incredibly unrealistic, but incredibly useful for understanding a fundamental aspect of the world around us, which is there are forces out there that push price in different directions relating to supply and demand, how much people value something and how much it costs and the willingness of suppliers to provide it. You can say, but it's unrealistic. It is. But without it, you have no understanding of why price moves around. You need to have some place to start. You might make it more realistic and think about, say, a cartel or, as you said, monopolistic competition. And then it's an art in thinking about which of those ways of simplifying the world is the most useful. And that's really what economics is to me. It's craft in helping you organize your thinking about the way the world works. It doesn't describe it with anything remotely close to the precision with which a physicist or an engineer describes the world. Uh, that's because we're dealing with human beings, human beings interacting with each other in incredibly complicated ways. 
in many ways, economics is like the N body problem. In physics, you worry about the three body problem. You have two two bodies, say the earth going around the sun, and science made a lot of progress on that. The three body problem is the earth's going around the sun, but there's this other planet, say, or the moon, this third body that's complicating it. And we're pretty good at making some progress on that. Well, human interaction in economic markets and in our economic interactions is lots of people. Now, sometimes it doesn't matter that there's lots of people. You can simplify it enough and understand it clearly enough that you can make some generalizations about what's going to happen. So, for example, if you put a tax on, it's pretty likely you're going to raise the price of the item to the consumer in, in one way or another, and there's going to be less of it bought and sold. That's amazing. You can get to that. It still it's, requires a lot of simplification. It requires a bunch of assumptions. It's pretty reliable. And some might say it's not that interesting. It's kind of obvious. It's common sense. And yet people often forget it. So one of the virtues of economics is to help you simplify the world and see things that are often forgotten or not easily noticed or hard to imagine and to help you see them. And that requires simplification. That doesn't mean it's, it's precise. It's not. It's general. It's very uh, – it's talking in general about directions, that trends, that things and, and prices will head toward or quantities will head toward. But it's um, it's an art in in thinking about how how the world actually works, and it's it's helpful. It's a helpful lens. I've made a second career out of trying to cut through the complexity of the world, especially the marketing world and what I call big corporate. And it's actually, as I'm saying, I'm writing a book about this subject at the moment, and and you've actually probably just given me a a, a link now between my past as an economist graduate and what I've been doing for the last 10 years. And it is that ability to use those models to simplify what is an extremely complicated system into something that's actually relatively easy to explain to people. And that's effectively what I've been trying to do with marketing for the last 10 years. So I've got a nice <laughs> a nice little link back now to the economics degree that I, that I did. And I think that I can link this to the two story stories together really nicely. Well, I'm going to add another piece to it, which is you mentioned econometrics. Econometrics is the application of statistical methods to uh, economic problems. And, of mm. course, there's a lot of econometrics used in marketing, mm. and it's very imperfect. <laughs> it's not a science. <laughs> it's an attempt to hold certain things constant to, to isolate the independent impact of, say, of an, an advertising campaign or a change in price for a product. It's very hard to do statistically. And any attempt to do that's going to be imperfect. It's going to be flawed, but you still could learn something from it. Mm-hmm. And that's true of marketing in general. It's not a science. I'm sure some of its practitioners think of themselves as scientific, but it's mainly a craft. It's an art. It's something you learn about intuitively. You have to use judgment and wisdom and experience. And to the extent you can bring that to bear in your book, it'll be a successful book. So how did you go about, I said I wanted to talk to you about the book you've written, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, but you also mentioned, Russ, that you've written three economic novels, works of fiction, and by writing fiction, you've actually woven into that fiction economic principles. How did all that come about? That sounds really fascinating. Well, it started back in the early 90s. I was very worried about the um, trade situation in the United States in the early 90s, a lot of people in the United States were very worried about Japan mm-hmm. dominating the United States, not much different than the way they worry right now about China. 
I think both of those concerns are misplaced and incorrect. I think it's a misunderstanding of the nature of trade. But in the early 1990s, the worry was Japan. Japan was going to take over the world. They were going to take all the good jobs. They were going to leave us with the bad jobs. And I wanted to try to move away from economics as being about money, which it is, but it's not only about money and very much so not only about money. It's about all kinds of aspects of, of life. And in particular, I was interested in how trade allowed us to flourish outside of the monetary sphere by allowing choices uh, to be made in the workplace to allow new products to come along, which wouldn't be able to come along if we stuck with trying to make everything for ourselves. And to illustrate that, I wanted to touch the heart. And I thought I'd try to make a movie. And I realized that was a mistake uh, after a very short period of time because uh, it wasn't my uh, expertise. I was better off trying to write something. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a novel that was a dialogue between an imaginary American fictional American executive in the 1960s worried about Japanese competition and David Ricardo, the great uh, English economist who created the idea of co what's called comparative advantage and made the case, the intellectual case for trade along with Adam Smith in the aftermath of Smith. And that was a dialogue between two people. One was an academic type who had an expertise in an area like trade. The other was a skeptic who, but who was curious. And that that formula is something I used to varying in varying degrees with my next two books as well. The Invisible, the first book was called The Choice, A Fable of Free Trade and Protectionism. And that I had the conceit there of David Ricardo coming back to life to, to, to try to finish his life's work as a, he was, he's a ghost who comes and haunts this executive who's in favor of protectionism. And Ricardo's job is to show this executive that it's not as simple as he might think. The books, I try to be honest, trade's not good for every single person at every single point yeah. in time. I don't want to romanticize trade, uh, but I wanted uh, – and there's many harm, harmful things that come with trade in that book, but I wanted to be honest about the benefits and the costs. And my second book was The Invisible Heart, an economic romance, which is really a, a free market or libertarian classical liberal manifesto. Uh, it's also a dialogue between two people, one of who's an advocate for that view and one's a skeptic. And my third novel was The Price of Everything, which is about emergent order and market forces, again, involving a, a teacher and a skeptic. So they always to make try to make it interesting. I involve the characters in a in, in a plot in something that to keep keep your interest as a reader beyond the economic lessons. But I try to weave them together so that uh, it's a little bit entertaining and a little bit educational at the same time. The first one almost sounds as if it had hints of A Christmas Carol in it with a ghost it coming is. back. It's a rip off. Yeah. It's a rip off of A Christmas Carol meets uh, It's a Wonderful Life because yeah. Ricardo takes the executive uh, Ed, Ed Johnson on a trip of what would America look like if his he's, he takes him into the future mm -hmm. and shows him what what America would look like if there weren't trade, if there were less trade. It's his way of, of course, educating us just as as uh, Dickens did with, with Scrooge. <laughs> and maybe with what uh, Donald Trump's doing at the moment with, um, yeah. with trade, you, you might have to update lively, the book. <laughs> lively uh, plot twist. Um, uh, it's not, I, hope it, I hope it has a happy ending. I'm worried, <laughs> very worried about it. So moving on to the the the, the nonfiction book that you put together, yeah. how Adam Smith can change your life. What what you've done here is you've taken the lessons from Adam Adam Smith's theories and applied them to modern life. So how did that one come about? So Smith wrote two books. In that sense, he's 
could argue, why? What did, what did he spend all his time on? He only wrote two books. <laughs> well, one of them is uh, The Wealth of Nations. There's, you know, arguably the single most influential book in in economic history, mm. in the history of economic thought. Uh, that and it's a big book. So it's fact. Uh, but it also had a big influence. So that was his that's his famous book. Uh, that's the book that some people have heard of. That's his, the book that you might read a paragraph or a page or even maybe half of a chapter in a college class. Uh, but he wrote another book and it's a book he wrote first and revised it many times during his life, both before and after The Wealth of Nations. The Wealth of Nations came out famously in 1776, mm-hmm. which is uh, very appropriate. But the his other book is The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Uh, he wrote that in 1759, published in 1759. And it in many ways is, is a more interesting book today than The Wealth of Nations. The Wealth of Nations is a very tough read. Uh, there are many terms in there that are alien to us. There are economic events that are so far in the past we don't always relate to them. Mm-hmm. Much of it's readable, though. I don't want to discourage anyone who wants to read The Wealth of Nations. If you go to econlib.org, E-C-O-N-L-I-B, which is the Library of Economics and Liberty, you can read both of Smith's books online uh, without charge. It's a nice resource. But his other book is The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and The Theory of Moral Sentiments is an attempt to understand why we care about each other. It's a book on human nature. Uh, Smith is famous for the exploration of the impact of self-interest, which is what is at play in the wealth of nations. But he understood that that's not all we care about. We don't just care about ourselves. We also care about others. And given how self-interested we are, and I think that's the the fact, I think most of us are very self-aware, self-loving. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put ourselves first. And we're not necessarily selfish or greedy, but we're self-interested. Mm-hmm. We care mostly about ourselves and less about other people. Uh, but why do we care about them at all? Is Smith's question, writing in 1759, well before Darwin and evolution, but it's an equally important question even in the aftermath of of Darwin and evolution. How is it that we've survived genetically either uh, through evolution if we're so self-interested and yet we still have altruism in our – some kind of altruism, some kind of fellow feeling, some kind of empathy? It's more developed in some people than others, but why do we have any of it? Why didn't it get sort of purged uh, by evolution? And so uh, Smith is interested in that, not the evolutionary part, but just why are we why are we nice to anybody? Uh, why are we gen- gen- generous? Why do we sacrifice many times for other people? Uh, and his answer is is that it is a deep, deep answer, and and we can go into it. But but the point is is that in 1759 he's writing about human nature, and he's a very thoughtful and perceptive human being. And he's writing about us human beings, and we haven't changed that much since 1759. So if you read his book, which is hard going because of its 1759 style at times, longer sentences than we're used to and some occasional vocabulary challenges, it's actually very relevant for our world because we haven't changed much. Mm. So my goal in that book was to take Smith's view of human nature. Smith's view of empathy, Smith's view of what we care about deeply, Smith's view of what gives us satisfaction and spin out those lessons for for us in the 21st century. And that's what I try to do in the book. So I, I kind of have two goals. One is to take Smith's lessons and apply them. And the second is to remind people that Smith had this other book that's full of wonderful insights and great passages. So in many ways, my book is sort of the greatest hits of the theory of moral sentiments, the paragraphs that uh, I think are still incredibly uh, moving, 
educational, inspiring for us today, uh, even though they're centuries old. And one of the key subjects that comes up around the marketing um, uh, discipline these days is the word empathy, which you just used there, Russ. Um, we're always being told that we have to have empathy with customers and that a lot of big corporates effectively don't have empathy with customers. So is there an empathy lesson that you've drawn out in, in the book that you could uh, share with us? Well, it's ironic you mentioned that because uh, in Smith's more well-known book, The Wealth of Nations, he argues that trade, and by that he just means buying and selling, not mm. international trade. He means any kind of buying and selling, mm. encourages us to be empathetic mm -hmm. because if we want to be successful, we have to put our, ourselves in the shoes of our customers. We have to imagine what would be useful to other people. That's, that's the wealth of nations, but sympathy and empathy play an important role in the theory of moral sentiments as well. And the, the argument there would be, what Smith, what Smith argues there is, to, to try to summarize it, is that we care deeply uh, about how we're perceived. We care deeply about how the people around us, what they think of us. Uh, he says it this way, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. And by loved and lovely, he doesn't just mean romantically. He means in every sense of those words, which was more common in the 18th century. He's saying that we want to be praised. We want to be respected. We want to be honored. We want to matter. We want we want people to take note of us. That's what he means by loved. By lovely, he means we want to earn that respect, earn that praise, earn that honor. We should matter because we're honorable people. And so Smith's saying is these are the two things we care the most about, how others see us and that we the that they see us for genuine reasons that we are that we are good and respectable, that we are actually worthy of respect, worthy of praise. And that's just a very, very interesting perspective on oneself and on human nature. And I think one of the applications of it, I don't talk about this in the book, but your question reminds me of this. One of the applications of that is, is we like to feel like we belong to something that's honorable and good. And I think a lot of successful products create that feeling. Uh, it's a little bit of an illusion, of course, to think that because I wear a certain kind of shirt or use a certain kind of phone or drink a certain kind of soda that I'm a certain, therefore, a certain kind of person. Mm -hmm. But we have that deep within us. And uh, Smith would have understood that kind of marketing campaign that gets us to identify with the brand well beyond its just external features of convenience and so on. And Smith, by the way, talks a lot about how we care he doesn't use this particular application, but he has the variation on, which is he'll say that a person will they'll want the newest watch, even though it won't make them be any more on time and getting to a meeting. <laughs> he says it might keep remember in Smith's day, watches weren't very accurate. So you get a watch now that's more accurate, he says, because because that's uh, why he says and he says, well, it's obviously not to get you on time to the meeting because you're still not good at that. You want to be able to show that you're on the cutting edge, that you've got the latest gadget. Remember, this is 1759. The gadgets he's talking about are pocket watches and ear pickers, literally <laughs> things you stick in your ear. But it's the way that people express status in his age. We express it through our cell phones and our cars and our and our and other devices. But it hasn't changed. Human beings still want to show that they're, you know, hip, that they're they're they've got the latest thing. And Smith talks about that urge in 1759. 
that, you know, he could almost have been describing the iPhone and the fact that we want oh, to upgrade yeah. to the next one every year when Apple brings yeah. out the next version. That's fascinating, Even though, isn't it? Truly, it yeah. doesn't really make us any fill in the blank, any what smarter, quicker, on time, you know, better conversationalists on the phone. In fact, it could make us worse. It could get us to look at more videos because the screen's a little better <laughs> and to pay less attention to our spouse. But but we want that latest thing sometimes just for the thrill of, of being respected as being on the cutting edge. And of course, just what you said before there, a lot of brands these days often have these lofty brand purposes, don't they? I mean, Starbucks yeah. is one that always comes to mind. Starbucks's mission is something like to inspire and nurture the human spirit. But I'm sitting there thinking, well, just tell me that you make really good coffee. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah. We, we I, always I try to yeah, go for let that. Let me get my meaning. <laughs> let me get my meaning elsewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. I just want a decent cup of coffee. <laughs> so what's next? Next for Russ Roberts, is there another book on the way, or is that you well, now complete? I'm thinking about a few things. One of the things I'm working on that's very time-consuming but very rewarding is a series of videos on standard of living in the United States mm -hmm. and the complexity of the numbers around that. So I'm, I'm I've put out two pieces to that. We're, we're, I'm working on part three. That might end up as a book. Uh, I'm very interested in the um, current state of of conversation in the United States, the just the uncivil nature of discourse on social media and what where's that coming from and what it might uh, lead to. So that's another issue. I'm just trying to get smarter. You know, it's hard work, Roger. It's uh, just trying to read a lot, think a lot, and we'll say something will, something will bubble up. Fantastic. This has been a fascinating conversation. You've you've reignited many memories and many interests that I'd long since forgotten about. And as we as we wind our conversation down, Russ, I always like to ask people, and this is the marketing and finance podcast after all, is there a marketing campaign or a product or 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 something that's grabbed your attention recently and made you think, yes, I like the look of that, or wow, that was a great campaign. Have you got an example you could share? Well, yeah, the, in America, um, it, it, I'm going to give you one that I'm going to give you an, an anti-campaign mm -hmm. uh, or, or the wrong answer for, for to, at least to start with, which is I've, I've been saddened by the uh, lack of excitement around Apple uh, over the last couple of years, mm -hmm. which I think, you know, used to be such an iconic and uh, incredibly well positioned brand. And it seems to be uh, getting a little tired. I'm, uh, I'm a little bit worried about it. And it's funny. I. We live in such interesting times where, uh, you know, I have a handful of products in my life that are that are so pleasant to interact with uh, that they they dwarf their equivalents of 10 and 20 years ago. An example would be Spotify. Mm. When I think about I, I love music, when I think about the access to music that I have, and this was true. This really started with iTunes and now is is Spotify to me is even is even better. When I think about I contrast that with my large collection of of compact discs of mm -hmm. CDs and how much better it is that I can listen to incredible music in my car, on my phone, in my house, uh, on my Sonos uh, speaker. It just it's such a source of delight to me. I don't think that's captured by a marketing campaign, any of that. No. Um, those are all really great products. Sonos is a great product. Spotify is a great product. And yet um, 
I haven't been marketed by them. I just happen to delight in them. I have a um, a Fuji mirrorless camera, the X100F. It's such a pleasure to use that camera compared to cameras I had in the past <laughs> when uh, I had to use film and even that some of the digital cameras I had in the past. And it's unlike the Smithy and watch, I actually think I take better pictures because of this device. It's not because the the lens is better or the camera's better, it's because the ergonomics of the camera allow me to be a better photographer. Mm-hmm. And I just find that so delightful. Um, I think we get, we get overly enraptured with devices and device envy, but these are two cases where I think it's real. Uh, the improvements are, are so vivid to me, and so I so appreciate them. And yet I don't think anybody markets those things particularly well. Uh, the things that, you know, that are marketed well tend not to excite me so much. Uh, you know, Tesla has an incredible uh, marketing campaign and I have zero desire to own a Tesla. I don't think it's <laughs> uh, as environmentally friendly as it appears to be. And it just doesn't it doesn't speak to me. Uh, but I think it's interesting that in today's world, uh, with our access to information through so many different channels, you know, marketing's not what it was 20 years ago. You know, 20 years ago, a, a classic marketing campaign was was almost necessary mm. to get your attention. I always viewed marketing as half about getting your attention and half about identifying with the product, not literally half and half. But those are the two main things that advertising formal marketing does. And I, it's not about fooling you. It's not about making you want something, you, you know, that you, quote, don't need. It's about reminding you that something exists and then helping you see that it might be something you'd want to buy. Those are two not so easy goals to achieve. And I think in today's world, with our access to social media, with our access to the networks of friends that we have online and our access to exploration online through, you know, through search engines, we find all kinds of wonderful stuff that uh, it kind of markets itself. It's a strange time. Is there a business book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast? I don't read many business books. Um, okay. You know, I, but I'll give you a, a different kind of answer to that. Most business books are telling us things we already know. Yeah. Uh, and that's true of most self-help books. And I think that leads people to a false impression that they can't learn anything from a the latest you know, fad, the latest hot book that that people are talking about. And I think that's a, a really a deep misunderstanding of of why we read and why we listen and why we explore and and, and take in the world. Uh, I'll give you an example. This is a very uncharacteristic answer for your example of a business book. But uh, I'm a big fan of Nassim Taleb mm-hmm. and his book, uh, Fooled by Randomness is basically an extended essay on the fact that the world is uncertain, there's risks you don't fully understand, and probability is tricky. There's nothing new about that. Everybody has known, people have known that for hundreds of years. Anybody trained as an economist as I was, uh, was forced to deal with, with that, as, as, as you know, from studying econometrics. That's really what it's, it's all about. It's about this idea that the world's a complicated place. A lot of things you think you understand, you don't fully understand. And in particular, things that are probabilistic are really hard, don't come easily to the human to the human mind. That's all true. And yet that book really got those ideas into my bones and made me more aware of them in a way that that lots of other things in my previous knowledge hadn't. 
And I think the reason to read the latest business book or to read the latest book like like Talib is that it's knowledge, wisdom, understanding. These are not things that you you read and, and can write down. They're, they're lessons that you absorb and access in ways you don't fully understand. So if I tell you something like, you know, risk, be, I'll take another example of Talab's, the, the so-called black swan. The black swan is the rare event that comes out of the blue that fools you. If mm. I said to you, oh, you, know, you should be careful about things that are you might not be anticipating. You say, oh, of course, that's obvious. And yet, are you going to remember it yeah. when you build that flood wall and you say, well, the, the the worst flood we've ever had was was 15 feet and this is a 16 foot flood wall. So we're safe. Well, that's a fool saying that. And Talib makes you think that reminds you that that's foolish. And that is what is powerful. It's not the fact that every once in a while things come along you haven't anticipated. No kidding. But to remember that when you're in a situation of danger that's so valuable. And I think that's why the latest book uh, is, is can, can be valuable, it can talk to you in a way that enters your consciousness and you're likely to remember it, that even though you already know it, it's, it's, it's still valuable. It's just it's just reawakening, just like I've had a few things reawakened in my mind today. It's just re reawakening hmm. memories, isn't it? Russ, fantastic conversation this afternoon. I'm hoping that people listening to the show today might want to get in touch with you. So what's the best way that people should connect with you? It could be Twitter, email, your website. Yeah, so I'm I'm at my Twitter handle is is Econ Talker. Econ Talk, my podcast with the ER at the end, Econ Talker at on Twitter. Uh, I archive stuff at my website very erratically, but there's a lot of stuff for the past there at RussRoberts.info. Uh, you can follow my podcast, Econ Talk, on iTunes, Stitcher, etc., cetera, uh, SoundCloud. And um, I'm at Medium. I write a lot at Medium under my name, under Russ Roberts, so you can search me there and find me. And my email is russroberts at gmail if you want to send me a, a note. Fantastic. And I will include all those links in the show notes of the podcast, which you can find at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-A-F. That's rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-A-F. Russ, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed our chat this afternoon. I'm going to go straight off now and watch that John Maynard Keynes rap. Thanks, Roger. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-A-F for links to the apps and topics and books we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Simply visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash iTunes and leave a review. I'll catch you on the next episode. In the meantime, keep marketing your business to keep growing your business.